Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Lisa Biggs. She's one of these people. I don't even say people. She's, she's a great friend of mine for, for a very long time. We've known each other for centuries. And you have these people in your life who, when you are trying to, when you have life's questions, she, she, they these sagacious people that you just call and they just spit out wisdom. Lisa Biggs is that person for me. Uh, but I've invited her on today because uh, she started a, a, a nonprofit program. Is it, wait, is it a profit program or nonprofit? So we were a nonprofit, yeah. Okay. Uh, the nonprofit, which is teaching children emotional learning through storytelling. And this is valuable because for you know people who are struggling with depression and, and suicidal ideations one of the tough things that uh comes or one of the things that comes up is we struggle with solving solvable problems and expanding the perspectives that we have on the situations that we are in and so through emotional learning uh learning about our emotions through storytelling it allows us to expand the opportunities and the scope of what we see in front of us and also learn how to solve what feels like unsolvable problems. So I'm excited to have you on, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful intro. And I would just echo that I'm always so pleased when I see that it's you calling because I know we're about to have one of those conversations that just goes deeper than the surface. And I live for those so thank you so talk to us about the emotional learning through storytelling first of all like how'd you get into it what's the name of your program and uh and what have you what have you found sure so the nonprofit is called sunflower bridge and it actually started um as a response to do you remember the 2017 california wildfires um, so, I do not remember that year specifically, but I do remember wildfires. <laughs> yeah, it was the Thomas fire. It hit Santa Barbara, Ventura, Ohio, um, really quite hard. A lot of people were evacuated. A lot of homes lost. Um, then there were the subsequent mudslides after that where several people lost their lives. And I, um, I'd heard that a lot of kids were struggling with PTSD um, and I kind of just started this program to connect kids through stories. And I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's a way that this could actually help. So I did some research into kind of trauma in general. Um, and I think trauma is a really exaggerated stress response that then perpetuates and affects different levels of your life. So I started looking at different modalities that could help with um, trauma recovery and and kind of got this idea, like, if we could teach kids how to manage these symptoms in their youth, then they wouldn't, you know, get to their late 20s and realize, oh, my God, I have all this inner child work to do. Because they kind of, I, I was kind of trying to seed that early so they could do the work as they grew up and be aware of these things um, kind of from, from the get-go. So I identified that there are three kind of areas that we should really look at when we're looking at how trauma impacts us and how we can overcome it. And it was things that we can do kind of mentally and emotionally inside of our own heads. The next step is within our bodies. Our bodies, I don't know if you've ever read The Body Keeps the Score by Bethel van der Kolk, but it's really groundbreaking and we store and process a lot of trauma um, somatically within our within our bodies. And then the third piece was really around community and connection. Um, so trauma kind of impacts the way we think about the world, the way we perceive the world, the way we feel about the world. It also impacts how we feel within our bodies. Sometimes I mean, we don't feel within our bodies, we disassociate. Um, and then it also impacts our relationships, the quality of our relationships and how connected we feel to other people. So I, I felt like in order to help them kind of overcome the challenges, we'd have to look at those three different areas. So I designed a program where I brought in local experts in those three areas of wellness and we ran a three-day workshop for these children in our local community um, and their families. So the first day they kind of focused on things they could do cognitively like uh, processing of emotions. We had a 
um, kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy group come in and talk to them about recognizing emotions. Like, how do you, how do you look at them? We did some neuro-linguistic programming patterns around how do you identify and describe those emotions so you can get really clear about what they are if you don't even have the words for them. Um, mindfulness meditation. And then we did the, the physical stuff. We did um, mindfulness kind of based yoga, trauma-informed yoga treatments for them. Um, generalized fitness where they got to dress up like superheroes and, and run around and kind of use their bodies and, and and then also describing like the physical sensations of feelings and emotions like that that piece you were talking about emotional processing the first step is really to be able to see what's happening in your body when you're having that emotional response and then the community piece we had a couple of different things that were really interesting love on a leash came and supported us so the kids got to spend time with animals um, and experience that kind of non-judgmental connection that we can get from spending time with uh, beings that aren't people <laughs> and and also the uh, local fire department came in and talked to them about building connection healthy communication around your emotions vulnerability and how to support each other so we ran those kind of sessions for the children during the day and then in the afternoons of those programs, um, we started by presenting the kids with a half-finished storybook where the character in the book had gone through a traumatic incident. So in the book, the character is a sunflower sprout um, and he's kind of starting to grow and there's a really bad storm. Now, specifically, we didn't use a fire. We didn't want to re-traumatize. And truthfully, no matter what trauma you've been through, the responses are the same. And while it can definitely help if people have been through similar things and to connect over that, to actually kind of overcome it, you don't necessarily have to dive into specifically what happened. So we presented them with this story where this character was experiencing the symptoms of PTSD that they'd been experiencing, trouble focusing at school, trouble sleeping, issues with relationships, um, kind of a lot of these things that we'd heard from the kids and their families they'd been going through. And then we left the story unfinished. And the kids sat and were like, well, what are, what's Sonny going to do? We're like, well, you tell us. Because well, we want a happy ending. So we said, okay, you write one. So at this point, the kids then created their own characters that we wrote into the story. We had a, a local artist kind of turn them into actual cartoons. It was really cute. The kids drew their pictures. They did all their character design. And what was interesting about this process was they got to create kind of an avatar for overcoming stress. And I think this is the part about storytelling um, and this program that was really powerful. There's a feeling, I think, sometimes when you're struggling emotionally, there's, there can be a lot of shame that goes around it. And you stop being able to see yourself as the person that could actually overcome it. And so one of the tools of using this character avatar within a different story is you can ascribe all of the traits to that that you wish you had, that truthfully you probably do have, you just may not have access to at that particular time. Um, and it, it's a really empowering exercise. So the way that we wrote the rest of the story, the kids helped us write the story, was the characters they'd created then taught Sonny what he could do to overcome it. So it allowed them to have a little bit of separateness from the issue. They didn't have to go really deep and personal and talk about what they've been going through. They could talk about it from a more theoretical point of view with kind of this idealized version of themselves, which in kids' worlds are sometimes flying dragons that jump into the ocean um, or like very wise dandelions. <laughs> the things that came out of their minds were adorable. Um, and so they created all these friends for Sunny and then we had them put on a puppet show um, at the end of the program where they played their characters and they taught Sunny all the different things that he could do, spending time with animals, processing his emotions, meditating, um, that would help him overcome that. And the kids were then able to use that as a way of empowering themselves. Not Now they weren't the receiver of this information because they were you know, hurt or broken or damaged in any way. They were now the guide that was teaching somebody else how to overcome it, which is a, a really different way of thinking about it and it empowers you in a way where putting that into practice is like a powerful experience and they developed confidence around it and they were able to it, it's like that concept of post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic growth they were able to process what they'd experienced take the lessons that they'd learned from it and use that in a way that would help others and we actually then um we had the book published 
we had a book launch around it. Um, the kids came to the library. We had local children from the community come and practice the different techniques that were present in the book after hearing the story. The kids signed autographed copies of their, their book that was now published and in the library. Um, it was just a really lovely project. And that was kind of the foundation. And what we're looking to do now is turn that into uh, elementary school curriculum. So the half-finished storybook could be provided to classroom teachers who'd receive training around how to do this because there's certain things you kind of have to keep in mind as you're guiding the kids through it um, and have kids create their own kind of superheroes against stress that they can write into stories and use as a way of exploring their own emotional well-being. Wow, I love that idea of superheroes against stress. First off, thank you for that work and that insightful work. What is your background that led you into this? So I was a teacher. Um, that was kind of the, the first thing. I, You and I actually met when I was studying psychology um, my first year of, of university. I then discovered studying abroad and I went and lived in Barbados, Brazil, Italy, and through that decided, ooh, I'm going to need a different major to keep pulling this off. So I ended up switching to linguistics, which then kind of catapulted me into teaching because I, I decided to go teach English. And I went to teach in Vietnam um, where I was working with a group of kids who were very affluent at a, a really popular and um, well-respected language institute. And then I was also teaching at an orphanage um, for children with social, emotional um difficulties, psychological disabilities, um, physical disabilities, or who were born with HIV AIDS. And this kind of got me, it, it, it was really powerful experience to work with both of those groups of kids and see the potential that all the children had. Um, and knowing like the different paths that were laid out for them based on their circumstances. And so that's when I decided, okay, I'm not just gonna teach because I wanna travel. Like education is something that's really important to me and I want to learn everything I can about it and become really good at it and create something that will help kind of level the playing field for these kids that, um, you know, deserve the absolute best possible future. I ended up then teaching high school um, where I was uh, also international program manager for uh, a study, study abroad program for high school kids, basically. So they came... Um, as international students and studied at a high school here. And one of the the roles that I had was cultural integration. And this is where I started to start kind of experience teaching more of like the social emotional skills and, and learning about those skills too. Um, and kind of helping the kids balance their cultural differences and, and come together. And one of the most powerful things that I witnessed through that was when they were able to be vulnerable with each other and really see each other, they connected and their academics improved as a result. Um, and then kind of just personally, th this all happened at the same time. So I'm kind of getting deeper into education, um, working with a lot of kids. And then like kind of my family background, my mom does neurolinguistic programming and hypnotherapy. So I've always had, and uh, my family's very much into like the personal development space. Um, and at the time I was kind of going through a, like, I'd realized I lived my whole life very focused on doing, like I was very much not, I wouldn't consider myself an emotional person. That wasn't something I had time for. I was going to change the world. I was starting businesses. I was running my educational programs and then kind of late twenties hit and I went, okay, there's some stuff going on here that I really need to work through myself. And it's, you know, um, definitely I can see that it's now holding me back and it's the next step of, of me being able to live the life I want. I need to kind of face my own emotional world that I'd really resisted. Um, and so I think all of those things kind of came together and I knew that I wanted to, to I'd always been really interested in storytelling. Um, I think just when you travel the world, you meet people, you learn through stories. And I then, um, read story brand I don't know if you're familiar with the marketing book but it it was talking about marketing I was kind of reading that as you know stuff for work and just the way that it was presented was like this is the framework that would help the kids this is when I started hearing the stories about kids 
after the fire. And it just kind of all, <laughs> it was probably a really convoluted answer to your question, but that that's kind of how it all came together. It just was the perfect time. I had these kids with a need. I had this background in, in education and stories and emotional education from kind of my family and work that I was doing and a real motivation to understand it from myself and what I was going through in my own life at the time. No, that all absolutely makes sense. And and I, I appreciate the exhaustive response to it uh, versus saying, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I had a psych degree and then, okay, great. Um, so I, I definitely want to dig more into the three areas of trauma. Yeah. Because the first area you talked about was mentally. And you said that there were cognitive exercises, neurolinguistic exercises, mindfulness, meditation exercises. On the mental side, when we're talking about cognitive exercises for the children, what are some of the things that uh, specifically that you gave to the children to address the trauma cognitively? And and would those things also uh, benefit adults or would you do it differently with an adult? 100%. So what what I kind of found, and actually I found this through teaching as well, what it, it kind of went both ways what we were trying to do with these processes a lot of the people that we were working with when we worked with these kids worked with adults and so it was like putting it in the form of a game or play in order for the kids to be able to resonate with it um and I found that actually goes both ways when I was teaching English I would I was much more effective in my classes where I was teaching adults when I turned it into a game and play I think when you can do that, you reduce stress and you become more open to learning. Um, but specifically, the things that we were kind of working with cognitively with them was a lot around um, recognition of emotions. Um, and the neurolinguistic patterns that we were able to to teach them with were things like almost like creating an identity around the emotion like what does it look like what does it what color is it how big is it if it had a personality what would that be like just being able to recognize what it's happening what what is happening and what it's doing within your body um and then the next step from that is okay what is it trying to do for you so I think the experience of PTSD can be really overwhelming because it almost feels like you're body and your brain are going against you you have all these alarm bells going off and in kind of communicating with it you can you can get what it's trying to to do in a positive there's there was a positive intention you know our bodies are designed to keep us safe and I think that was one of the biggest messages that came through so if the student's having you know social anxiety it may be that those emotions are coming up in order to keep them safe because they've had negative experiences with relationships and relationships are coded as dangerous. And if you're not able to process, okay, this is the emotion that I'm experiencing. This is what it looks like in, in my body. This is what that feeling is telling me. This is what it's trying to do for me. And then from there, you can decide, okay, is that something that I, I really want? Like, you know, maybe it's not all relationships are dangerous. Maybe it's something else that I can look at. And that then opens the door for the cognitive processing of those emotions. Um, I've recently been taking a course through the um, Bessel van der Kolk's Trauma Institute. And one of the things that they're focusing on is IFS, internal family systems. And I think it kind of mimics that. Like there are parts within us that develop in order to protect us in some way. And if we if we allow them to function without being aware of them, with no awareness, they're just running the show. We may not look at them. We're not focusing on them, but they're in the driving seat because they control our subconscious behaviors, which dictate how we live our lives. And the first step is really being able to identify them and almost like communicate with them in order to kind of come to an agreement like, okay, maybe we don't need to panic every time we're going outside when it's dark. Maybe there are things we can do before we leave the house to, you know, take a flashlight or whatever um, in order to get the same result, which is keeping us safe and secure without 
engaging in the behaviors, thought processes, or feelings that are holding us back from what we really want from ourselves in order to overcome what we've been through. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that there was a point in your journey, you said late 20s, where you recognized that there were behaviors or, or patterns that were holding you back. Are you open to sharing what that was and how you processed through that? Yeah, definitely. So I I had um, my main issues, I think, were around food. I was very unconscious with my relationship around food. Um, and then also um, I'd kind of become, I had a lot of stress happening in my life and I very much isolated myself. And it was really just any way that I could, I, I was, I was trying to numb my way through life for sure. Um, and that was definitely in response to some negative experiences I'd had throughout my twenties that um, kind of in the context of relationships and um, I thought the the best way forward was to go, you know what, I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm not going to let it bother me. I'm just going to charge forward. And there was benefit to that. Like I was able to do some really great things with my life, but it meant that these other things started to happen. Like I started to have a lot of issues with my weight because I was definitely using food as a way of coping. And, um, I didn't have the quality of relationships in my life that I really wanted because I wasn't able to fully be myself with anybody. And so I, you know, started looking at that and, and kind of processing through what I was really trying to hide from and, and realize what, what that was doing for me. Um, and having to overcome it, like that, it's scary. I think when you you create a world that feels really safe, and then you have to start doing something differently. And so, I will admit, like the book that those kids wrote helped me a lot. There are days when I bust it out, and I go, "Okay, I need to to be like Sunny today." And and what can I learn? And you know, meditation has been really, really helpful to me. Um, and fitness has been another one you know that the whole somatic thing like being able to actually you know process stuff through like physical movement is is huge like yoga capoeira triathlon all of these things that I've put into my life in order to kind of change change the trajectory of the story that I was living into you know I, I realized if I continued to live in the the storyline that I was in this character was not going to have a happy and healthy life ultimately and I had to change the end of my own story there yeah the, the quality of your relationships I, li I like that phrasing because I never thought about that when I think about quality I always think about food like the quality of mm. the food that I'm eating is it local organic grass-fed things of that nature um, but I I don't really haven't really thought about the quality of my relationships. And I would assume that if that's not feeding us, right, if it's not, if the, if our relationships aren't nutrient dense, then we're going to seek out the nutrition in other ways, food, drugs, sex, alcohol, et cetera. Absolutely. That's a really, really good way of putting it. I think when it comes to health and wellness, it's, you look around the kind of the branding is all about like you just need to exercise and eat a healthy diet but it's so much more than that it's the thoughts that you think that's a huge component of being healthy and happy you know a lot of the studies will show that you know if you're having stressful thoughts all the time you're putting your body in a state of stress and you're not going to be healthy because of all the stress hormones that you're producing you can eat and exercise perfectly but your body is not going to respond in a healthy way and the same thing is if you're not getting those nourishing social interactions, you're not, we, we physiologically have a need for that. You, when we connect with people, you know, we hear about oxytocin and it's the whole sex bonding hormone and it, the, the breastfeeding hormone that bonds the mother with the child. But it's also released when you just are authentically connecting with another human. Friendships are a huge foundation of that. And all of those different things. Sunlight is another one. You know, if you're not spending time outside, you're you're not going to be fulfilling your body in that way. So your body is a very complex system. 
that is taking in information and triggers from everything that you surround yourself with and you have to look at all of it you know if you're if you don't have those quality relationships like you said you're going to seek out the the satisfaction that you should be getting from those from other places um and there really isn't another place you can get it from there are shortcuts where you can get a fleeting high from some substance or some behavior but you're not going to get that deep satisfaction you're going to perpetuate that need and it's just going to get bigger and bigger yeah yeah you mentioned in terms of quality of relationships this idea that there were people you didn't feel comfortable enough expressing yourself around could you say more about mm-hmm. that yeah i think I think a lot of people experience this. There was like a mask that I had that was a super safe version of myself. Um, And it was pretty easy for me to, to kind of, it's never been super difficult to connect with people, but to kind of, I don't know, go deeper with people was a little bit challenging. I would say like, I, I was never very good at, being like a vulnerable person I was the strong person like I was very comfortable with other people's vulnerability you know I I loved being that support system for other people but massively uncomfortable having anybody do that for me um and I think that you know is that leads to not in authenticity and um learning to do that is a challenge but it's something ultimately that I think just brings richness. And it also is beneficial for the other person. You know, if you can be vulnerable yourself, you invite vulnerability back towards you. Um, and there's a lot that you kind of have to overcome with that. You know, I was, I very much pride, I, I still pride myself on being a very emotionally strong person. Um, you know, I, I've definitely been able to live a life that I'm really proud of and I would always lead with that um and some of these other struggles that I was having you know like I was having my own issues with depression I was having my own issues with anxiety I definitely didn't want to lead with that (laughs) you know I was living in a world of shame around it and so it would it would really color the way that I was able to show up in relationships without being able to I mean, I definitely don't want to show up and meet everybody like, hey, my name's Lisa. Occasionally I struggle with depression. Like that's, I don't want to lead with it in that way. But in trying to hide it and pretend that it wasn't a thing, it became a bigger thing. Um, And so I think that that's one thing that I've been really pleased to see happening in society in general in the past few years is our willingness and openness to talk about mental health and to talk about when, you know, the struggles that we're having. Um, and because it is such a complex system, like I was saying, there are there are factors that, you know, it, I think the, the perception that I had and I felt like was present in society was like, if you weren't super happy and confident and successful, it's because you were doing something wrong and it should be obvious to you and just don't do that anymore, you know, just be stronger. But I think the more that I've learned about it, specifically with trauma, I think you know, the, the experiences that we have that are traumatic and we don't process impact us massively. And I think that's a huge factor in, in mental health. Um, but it, it's everything. It, it's it's food, it's people, it's um, exercise. It's so many different things that there shouldn't be any shame around it. There should be open conversation because you you can impact it for the better by changing any one of those factors. Yeah, it's so true. The, um, when you talked about, um, I lost my train of thought just now. I can't believe it. Um, I do want to go back to the mentally, uh, the mental area of dealing, coping with trauma. Cause I'm thinking of people who are mm-hmm. struggling with suicidal ideations, um, and an addiction, you know, an addiction, I think they call it the red dog. It's like, oh, the red mm. dog is back. And and suicide ideations or depression, they call it the black dog. You know, so it's it's interesting that I've heard this type of language in different areas. Um, what were some of the interesting 
physical forms that the, the children came up with on the mental side? Because you, you talked about when we have these emotions, to, to give it a color, notice how big it is, what are the physical traits, what is it trying to do for you? Um, I know you talked about safety and security, but uh, what were some of the the physical forms that these children came up with? So there was part of the story where it was um, one of the characters, her kind of superpower was to be able to see emotions in herself and in other people. And so when Sunny was struggling with feeling really overwhelmed, like we kind of refer to them with the kids as those big feelings, right? You don't necessarily have the words to articulate what they are, but they completely hijack your entire system. And one of the um, the emotions was anxiety, like panic. And that the kids described as like a big blue spiky ball. Um, it was sharp. It was very frantic in its movements. Um, and it was completely within like their abdomen and in in kind of communicating with that it's like well, what is what is it trying to do for you and the kids had their different responses to that for sure and I think it the power really is in that communication of what it's trying to do for you within like if, if you were trying to use this technique for yourself it would be you know the value of it is in that question um but a lot of times it's trying to keep, it's hypervigilance, right? Like I think we have a really good understanding that our brains learn and remember things to keep us safe. Like that whole trope about like, you touch a hot stove once, you're not gonna touch it again. You identify a behavior that causes pain and you learn, okay, I don't engage in that behavior. I really do think that's that's kind of what, trauma and traumatic response is trying to help us do emotionally you know we experience an emotion through a terrifying event or a uh, an interaction that really scares us with another human and our brains try and do that same coding like okay that wasn't safe I need to be safe I'm not going to engage in in this that or the other and I, I think it's when it's a touching a hot stove it's super clear don't touch the hot stove when it's a reaction to a person there's a lot more questions around that um and so I think it, it's getting really clear on what was it that it, that's when you start to like go back to like what the interaction was that caused the fear right what was it about that interaction what was it about that that was frightening and dangerous and has it been appropriately coded um, or is it something where you, you can kind of go, okay, that was an isolated incident and I no longer want to be held back by that feeling. Um, and that um, kind of behavior pattern that, that originated out of it. And when you're talking about things like addiction and suicidal ideation, I think uh, a way of, thinking about that is it's it's escapism right varying degrees of, of, of severity of escapism and it's it's creating separateness and it's kind of giving up on there ever being a future um through whether you want to disassociate yourself through a drug or behavior that is going to save you from the pain right now or a more permanent solution to the pain, right? And I think there's one part of the storytelling process that is super, super important in being able to, to do this work in general um, and to kind of process your feelings in order to, to move through them. And that's looking at the end of the story. Because if you are able to create a compelling character that you're living into that has learned from what you've been through that has those characteristics of strength and um kindness and happiness and you know however it is you want to show up in the world whatever you're being held back from um by what you've been through if you're able to actually see that character you 
you stand a better chance of living into it and becoming it. And I think if you don't have that really clear vision, if you can't see, feel, and experience what it would be like to be that person, then I, I don't know what where you would find the motivation to do any of the work or change or work towards it, frankly. And I think that's where I really am passionate about like the process of storytelling. Humans communicate through stories. We remember things through stories. Our brains process things through stories. And we are constantly writing the story of our own life. And if that story has an ending that you're not super stoked on, then I think that's probably the first thing that you should look at because it, it's not going to be possible if you can't see it. You know, I think that's really the first step. Yeah, I love that. And in a part with the, the body, you know, we're still talking about the three areas of trauma. And the second part you mentioned was the somatic work, the body work. For, for someone who is paralyzed they can't mm. they can't do yoga they, they can't do capoeira or do a, a triathlon uh, you know i think about uh there was a football player who has als now and i think he's been bedridden for years um and i'm fascinated with the the mental fortitude that he has to i think the doctor gave him like three months and and he's i think he's been going for like five to seven maybe i don't know how long but he's way out live. Wow. Uh how does one approach body work or somatic work uh in that type of situation? Wow, that is a really good question. I I really don't know. That you've you've stumped me there. Um I mean tell me more about what if you well i would assume i would assume that when i think about body work also in somatic work uh, that part to me sounds like touch and so whether that's through massage or acupuncture or uh physical therapy you know having a nurse come in and and move you around um maybe even I don't know, but sauna work or mm -hmm. cold tub work, you know, something to change the the, the temperature of the body. Uh, mm -hmm. for, for the listeners, for everybody out there, this is this is me going off the top of my head. This is not I'm not sharing anything that I've read in the research, uh, but I'm just thinking out the box because I am aware that I have listeners and, and there's just people out there in the world who who can't go for a walk. but uh, yet have to have some type of physical movement. You know, I think, because I just think about all those mm. uh, hospital shows that are, you know, ER, Grey's Anatomy, and a person doesn't want to move, and the nurse has to come in and, and move their leg. Like, we got to move it, you know, so it doesn't uh, stiffen up, that kind of thing. So I'm I'm wondering if that would be considered body work, because I, I did read Body Keeps the Score, but I don't know that he co covered people who just aren't physically able to do yoga yeah it's a really good point um definitely something you've now inspired me to look more into um as far as the temperature work I think that's I know there's a lot of um like if, if you look at kind of what Wim Hof has been doing um uh, his kind of cold exposure therapies and and treatments that he's been doing were out of response to to grief it was his way of managing grief and depression after losing um his wife and from what i understand which i'm not a scientist or i kind of wish i was um a lot of that is related to the vagus nerve um and the vagus nerve is, is quite susceptible to different temperatures and that um plays a huge role in kind of stress regulation and anxiety um experience and I think there are some things that you can do like with temperatures, like stressing the body and creating resilience to stress through physical kind of controlled exposure allows you to develop those skills of stress management for when it 
happens on its own within your body based on maybe an emotional trigger. Yeah, I'm reading here now. It says somatic therapy aims to help individuals regulate their bodily sensations and responses to stress, trauma, and other emotional experiences. The vagus nerve is involved in this process as it helps to regulate the body's stress response and plays a role in emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, uh, yeah, I've I've been listening to like Vegas music on YouTube. I don't know how effective it is uh, when I'm doing work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really interesting. I've been reading about that too. And um, one of the things I, I just learned is uh, there, have you seen those devices that you can get that actually stimulate the vagus nerve through like electro um, electricity going through them like you can put something on your ear and it sends like a electro signal to your vagus nerve and can calm you down um and one of the other things that you can do is like any kind of vibration will will stimulate it so i think that's why people find singing so healing um and even chanting like if you like the ohm feeling like it, it does calm you down and um part of the reason for that might be because it's creating that stimulation in your vagus nerve um and it going back to capoeira it's something that i've practiced for a long time and i always found it like more than any other physical exercise you get the physical part of it too right you're stressing your body you're mimicking kind of a a a fight in a lot of ways but you're dancing while you're doing it um so you're you're doing kind of that physical somatic thing which is creating the stress in order to practice overcoming it when it comes up but capoeira also involves drumming and singing and dancing and all of those things are also really powerful when it comes to kind of processing emotions and healing and like i think there is some validity to what you're experiencing with the the vagus nerve music is it it creates um kind of a physical uh, vibration or pulse that that can calm your nervous system down yeah and tina turner's book and i forget who else mentioned it how chanting was really something that helped them cope with stress and anxiety and depression and really get them through some tough times. And I find that even for myself, I will occasionally sing nam yo renge yo nam yo renge yo. A friend of mine took me to, uh, I think it's part Buddhism. I'm not sure what it's seeped in, but um, I went maybe three or four times. And mm there was a point where we were chanting that for a good 15 minutes and it really took me into this trans transcendent state or this out of body state where, um, I did, I didn't want to stop. Like I was, it was like I was riding a wave and especially with everyone chanting, Nam yo, renge yo. um, mm. you know, I haven't been in, in years, but occasionally when I find myself stressed, I come back to that. And it's also interesting with the singing at night, at the end of my day, that's when I need to put my music on. I'm taking when I'm about to get in the shower, I cut my music on my hip hop or or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. uh, R and B. And there's just something so soothing about singing, you know, about two to three songs. And then I feel like I got it all out my system. There's something very cleansing about it. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think, something that I'm noticing now, and I've definitely dived into the world of kind of, um, like, personal development and, like, all the science behind why we're doing the things that we're doing to help us be happy again. So much of it comes back to what we intrinsically knew to do years ago. Like, one of the benefits I've experienced about traveling is you start to get to see what what we all do that are the same and singing is a big part of that like humans have come together and and sang for millennia and dancing and physical movement and connection and and eating together and there are these different facets I can't remember all of them I'll have to look this up and get back to you but it was uh, an anthropology class I took once there were like seven things that all different human societies do and I think the way that I've kind of started to understand that with the work that I've been doing recently is you know 
we have kind of disconnected in the way we've designed our culture recently from kind of like our natural state of being like we've I think we're living in a, a world where we're entertained all the time we have these dopamine fixes coming from entertainment we are quite disconnected we're always on the go like we don't we're not as mindful and I think we're now seeing a shift in and coming back to it but if you look at nothing that we're kind of discovering now is new it's just we're realizing how important it actually was um which I think is so cool because when it kind of shows like our natural state as humans is to be aware of of what makes us feel good and pursue more of that and I think now we're we're starting to identify what those things are and um I hope it continues because I think it's really I think it's really helping us get back to a more fulfilled and happy society ultimately so to, to to wrap up, if mm. someone's struggling with suicidal ideation, and because to me it feels like a, sometimes like it feels like I'm on fire, sometimes it feels like a tidal wave. So if we're if we're looking at the three areas of trauma and applying that, it sounds like the first thing I would do is, uh, you know, give it a color, uh, you know, describe it physically, color, the size. You know, I talked about being a wave or on fire, things like mm-hmm. that. Um, and then the second part is, um, and then ask myself, like, what is that, that suicidal ideation or what is that, that character trying to do for me instead of mm-hmm. thinking that it's, it's there to harm me? Like, maybe it's, because uh, uh, I, I found that, um, Sometimes it comes on when I'm overworked or overstressed or if I'm too performative, if I'm not being authentic, uh, you know, if I'm not eating the right foods, like there's certain things that can trigger it. And sometimes it just comes out the blue uh, or Mm. seemingly out the blue. Um, So to to recognize, to ask myself, what is it trying to do for me? And then the Mm -hmm. second part, we're talking about the body work is like, okay, all right, it's here. Uh, if it is a dog, well, let's take it for a walk. So that's the the physical part. Or let's let's t- go to yoga. It wants to go somewhere. Let's let's move it around. Uh, this part about dressing up like a superhero um, <laughs> is that something that I would do then as, as part of the body work? Would I dress up like a or is that a a, a costume uh, like kind of like a Clark Kent Superman kind of thing? Well. I think knowing you, yes, absolutely, you <laughs> should dress up like a superhero. <laughs> um, I think in general, what you're speaking to is like, how can you interrupt that state, right? Like you, um, and I've, I've experienced those feelings too. I've had those thoughts and I think it, they're overwhelming, um, they're terrifying. And like you said, it can feel like it's out to get you. And I think definitely the first step is like, okay, this is trying to do something for me. And I think the power of movement is it kind of interrupts that fight, flight, freeze state, right? I think in my experience, when I've been in that mindset, it very much is a freeze state. Like I I feel like I just can't move and that perpetuates. Like I'm then alone with those thoughts. They get bigger. I feel more stressed and it, it becomes completely overwhelming. So I think, yes, if you're able to do anything and move and, you know, I kind of joke about putting on a superhero costume, but the power of of costume is also huge. Like if you put something on that can change your physical state, you know, something that you feel confident in. Um, and so it, it, it's certainly not a requirement, <laughs> but um, I think if you can, if you can do something in those three areas or all three of them at the same time, that's going to help. Like if you can do something to minimize those disrupt those thoughts that are kind of out of control within your own head, you can do a mindfulness meditation. If you can calm yourself down, if you can like have a conversation with those emotions, what are they trying to do for you? You know, I, I, I feel like one of the conclusions I've come to is when I'm in those feelings of 
like I don't want to be here anymore. It's like I, it's not necessarily life in general, but there are definitely aspects of my life that are just not worth it to me anymore. Um, and so it's like using that as an opening to identify like where am I unfulfilled here? Like why, why, why don't I want this? What is it about this that is so awful? And you know, sometimes that is like, you know, when it's clinical depression um and it's not like I said something that you're doing that can be really challenging and that's when you'd want to kind of reach out for for more professional help right like if it's a feeling that's happened within your body a set of emotions that you you can't interrupt that's that's a whole different different thing but going back to like okay what can I do cognitively now what can I do physically to to help move like going for a walk is is huge I was recently reading that when you walk out in nature the one of the reasons EMDR, um, the eye movement desensitization, is so powerful is because it it has your eyes move in a pattern that you would experience out in nature. Like the different light when you walk through the trees, it, it triggers your eyes to move in a way that can help you kind of process that stress and, and that emotion cognitively. So going for a walk is fantastic. And then what can you do to to connect with other people? Like can you call somebody and and have a conversation where you feel connected to them? Can you find somebody to give you a hug, you know, it, it, those three areas are all powerful tools in recovery. And I, I think being able to, and, and this is what, you know, ultimately we, we tried to do through the story, like the character that those kids created, they were able to try all of these different things that we exposed them to over three days and find what resonates with them. And it's their own toolkit for overcoming it it's not going to be the same for every person um and I think being able to be aware of what's happening in your body why it's happening is the first step because then you can actually start to gauge the effectiveness of the different interventions that you're you're trying and dressing up as a superhero very well maybe one of them uh, you know with Halloween around the corner because right now it's uh <laughs> early September it, it makes me think about costumes and how much money I spend on buying costumes. And now this makes me want to create my own costume or a number of costumes. Um, so I'm now I'm, I'm a bit excited about Halloween. It's like, what, who is, <laughs> you know, who is this, who is a superhero version of, of Leo flowers. Mm. Um, the, this last part, this third part about the three areas of trauma, you talked about love on a leash, which Michelle is a part of she, her and, and Mila. They go every week, but now they've kind of scaled back because of COVID um, mm. numbers are going up. Um, but there was something you, you shared that was very interesting to me. You said it's, a, it's about um, non-judgmental connection. And I never mm. thought about that with a dog. Like, you know, I've heard people say that, but I think typically when I'm talking to, when I've shared you know, go connect with other people, meet with other people, but that non-judgmental connection. I mean, I think that's the, the key value of going to a therapist or a coach is right. you're basically paying for them not to judge you. Mm -hmm. um, and cause it's so hard. I mean, you, you know, you go to your mom, good luck with that or your dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> is there more you want to add to that piece because i just thought that was fascinating yeah i think um it what made me realize i i, I wasn't sure what i knew time with animals like being with like there's equine therapy and therapy animals and i wasn't really sure what it was doing and i was talking to the one of the women from love on a leash and she was saying that one of the ways that one of the programs that they run is for children who are struggling with um, learning to read. And they take the dogs uh, or the animals to the library and the kids will go and practice reading to an animal as a way of, of practicing their reading, right? They get the experience of kind of being heard and connected. But, and I've seen this in the classroom, you know, you have those kids who you ask them to read in front of the class and there's so much stress around that because you know, we're social creatures. We respond to perceived rejection in a really powerful way. We are not safe if we're rejected. So I realized that, okay, if, if what's happening, you know, when they're reading to the kids, to, to the animals, as opposed to when they're reading in front of other students is 
there's just no judgment there. Like a dog doesn't know how to read. <laughs> what, is, what does it care if you mispronounce a word? And it allows you to kind of practice that. And I think that's, like you said, that is what kind of a, a powerful experience, being able to be seen and heard without that feeling of shame can kind of help you overcome it. You know, if you practice reading to, um, the more you practice reading, the better you're going to get at it, right? Um, so if you're doing that, to an animal that's not going to judge you then you're going to be more likely to keep practicing it as opposed to if you're trying to overcome all those thought processes oh my goodness what if I say it wrong what if Jimmy makes fun of me after class what if everybody laughs at me like we have all these fears around social rejection I think that can stop us from taking the actions that that we want to take and when you're talking about like when you're paying a therapist or a coach for that non-judgment you're allowing those things that that feel really big inside of you you're getting that practice of being authentic and not being judged for it you're being able to express your authentic self in a way that is really how we we all want to be able to to be our authentic selves right we want to be able to say how we really feel about things um and so i I think it's it's a similar process like you have to have that you're kind of building that emotional muscle of sharing what you feel and having somebody not judge you for it and it was one of the um one of the things I learned about especially with relational trauma um people who've been through kind of maybe domestic abuse or negative relationships one of the most healing things for those people is having a positive relationship you actually have to learn and see and real life experience that it wasn't every single person, you know, it was this one situation or these multiple situations and having, being able to replace those negative fears and experiences with positive experiences is one of the best ways of, of healing. If you are terrified of, of being shamed for who you are and you have the experience of being loved and accepted and celebrated for who you are, that learning is also going to be processed by your brain. That's going to then shift the way that you see the world and you can change the lens in which you see the world and change your experience of it. I love that, that we all just want to be loved, accepted and celebrated for who we are instead of judged for who we are. Um, Mm -hmm. Lisa, this was awesome. Last two questions. Uh, because I always feel like there's someone listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Lisa? Um, oh, I would say if you if there would if there was another option, what would it be? And not ask the question of what is the other option, because I think that's too confronting. But if there was another possibility, what would it be? If there was something that you could have in your life that would take that feeling away and would make you want to stick around, what would it be? Like in a hypothetical, what would it be? The first thing that came to my mind were books. I love books and there's something very grounding about Mm. books. Um, they, they say it's like when you think about ending your life and you think about the last thing that you would give away or the hardest thing to give away, that's the thing then you need to think about to keep you grounded. Mm. I thought that was, oh, that was that. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, last, last question, Lisa, is what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Oh, um, I'm really looking forward to swimming in the ocean this afternoon. I'm very lucky to live where I, I do, and I'm training right now for a race, and ocean swim is one of the best feelings ever for me. Yeah, it makes you feel alive, that cold water, the, the, the it's something freeing about it, and and like intense because you are in the ocean. Totally. <laughs> You're exactly. like, is that is that seaweed or is, is this my my last <laughs> kit? You know, you don't know what's happening. 
<laughs> I used to be totally phobic of the ocean too. I was terrified of it. And it was one of the motivators for doing my very first ocean based triathlon was like, and I did it as a fundraiser too. Cause I was like, man, if, if I, if what I think is going to happen, which is obviously I'm going to be eaten by a shark. Um, if it actually happens, at least I did it like trying to help the kids, you know, <laughs> um, setting up the, to, to overcome that, um, that stopping behavior that I was engaging in. So now being able to actually go into the ocean and enjoy it is like a huge win for me too. And there's something about the ions and the cold and the sunshine. Like it's just super good for your body and your mind in every way. Yeah. It's, it's all the things. Yeah. It's one where you just feel strong from head to toe and I, I sleep incredibly well after a, a good day swim. So, Oh, absolutely. Uh, Lisa, thank you for joining us. Thank you listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you calling to get help. Call the 988 or any of the other 800 numbers that are listed in all of the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. Take care.